Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Mark chapter 2. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by the four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow think he can talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in their spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Lizzie, so much for reading for us. I wonder if you've ever watched the 1991 Ridley Scott film, Thelma and Louise. It tells the story of two happy-go-lucky American girls, Thelma and Louise, who decide to go for a road trip. And uh, they do it because they're sick of their dull day-to-day lives. Now, things quickly go wrong. A man threatens to assault Thelma and Louise kills him. Fearful that they'll be charged for murder, they decide to run rather than give themselves up and it all goes downhill from there. They fear the unsympathetic legal system, so Thelma robs a petrol station, they blow up a fuel truck, they end up locking a policeman in his boot after holding him at gunpoint and then a statewide car chase ensues and the two runaways end up cornered at the top of a canyon. Now there they are, they're guilty beyond hope, and there's nowhere to run. With police guns trained on them on three sides and the canyon cliff edge on the fourth, they look at each other, they join hands, and they sail off the precipice. And the film finishes there. Now the way the film is written, we are geared up to see this as something of a sort of tragedy triumph. Friendship wins over the otherwise unavoidable but unjust arm of the law. But the ending touches on so much more. It begs the question, 
Is there such a thing as justice at all? What do we do, what can we do with our wrongdoing? What are innocence and guilt anyway? Is there such a thing as guilt? And if there is, what can we do with it? And those are very deep human questions. They're also peculiarly confused in our culture. So on the one hand, there are people who would want to undo the concept of guilt completely. I read a, a quote by the celebrity chef Yotam Otolenghi this week. He said, I don't do guilt. Whatever I do, I do it happily. Now that sounds kind of cool and liberated and independent. And then you think about it for longer than about five seconds and you, you want to ask some questions. So for example, Yotam, when you lose your temper with your kids, even though they've done nothing wrong, you don't do guilt, you just do it happily? Or when you lie to save your reputation, Yotam, you don't do guilt, you really just do it happily? Trying to undo guilt completely doesn't really add up on a human level. Then again, at the other end of the spectrum, there are many today who are plagued by utterly excessive, misplaced guilt. Guilt about crazy things, like having an extra dollop of cream on your crumble. I know who you are. Or, or for failing in some way as a parent, even when actually in the circumstances you could never have done anything different. And so for many, guilt is utterly and needlessly overwhelming. One preacher I read this week captured the spirit. She said, I was tormented with guilt for years and years. In fact, it was so bad that if I didn't feel wrong, I didn't feel right. Well, into that confusion, the Christian gospel speaks both realism and hope. Realism, first of all, that comes from being confronted with the God in whose world we live, the God to whom we're accountable, and therefore we need forgiveness from him for our guilt. But then also hope, the hope that this same God offers in enabling our guilt to be forgiven, the God who in love at great cost enables us to throw off that burden for our future to be utterly and decisively free. And I'm praying we're going to see both of those as we come to this next section in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'd love you, if you haven't yet got it open, particularly if you're at home, find a Bible, do open it up to this passage, or, or follow it on your device. We're going to focus where I began. Chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus said, child or son, your sins are forgiven. And I want to just think about those words, your sins are forgiven, under two headings. Number one, a shocking thing to say. And number two, a wonderful thing to say. First of all, it was a shocking thing to say. We're going to go back to the beginning. Reread chapter two from verses one. Imagine for a moment a movie adaptation. And let's see it through that lens, as it were. The first scene is a wide-angle picture, slowly panning around, a crowd thronging, teeming around this house. Verse 1, Jesus had again entered Capernaum. The people heard that he'd come home. Now, imagine zooming down to ground level over the shoulder of one of those people pressing towards the house. Well, what's going on here? What's all the fuss about? Mark chapter 2, verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he, Jesus, preached the word to them. Now imagine your camera 
lifting up and zooming in on the roof. Verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. See the men clawing at bits of the roof. Now, let's switch to the first person, as it were. Let's look through the eyes of the paralytic for a moment. Verse 4. They lowered the mat the man was lying on. Just imagine it sort of jerking down unsteadily. Bits of the roof and debris kind of still falling down, dust falling on his face. And the people watching, they can't believe it. They say Jesus brings the house down, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> well, a few people got it. Well done. <laughs> well done. And then imagine the hush. The paralytic is lying fearfully, but expectantly on the floor. The press of the onlookers, they've been waiting all day for this Galilean miracle man to do his stuff. Here goes, someone says, under his breath. Now pause. What would we, what what did they expect to happen at this point? Well, surely this is what they expected. They expected Jesus would heal him. Heal him, as he's done before. He'll restore to this man the freedom and the possibilities of an able body. And that's what he needs. I mean, particularly at a time of no wheelchairs or social security or step-free access, no way of earning a living for a disabled person, none of the possibilities of modern medicine, the enormous awkwardness of, of needing four friends and a hole in the roof just to get to hearing from Jesus, it underlines the point. It must have been desperate. What this guy needs is healing. Surely Jesus will say, be healed. But verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Gasps around the room. This wasn't the script they expected. That's a shocking thing to say. I'm shocking, first of all, because it suggested that this person had an even greater need. A need for forgiveness. I guess it's like if you witnessed an accident and and there's an injured person on the floor and they've obviously cut their leg really badly and then a paramedic arrives just as you approach but they move straight past the leg and start attending to that person's airway, their breathing. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you the leg may look bad but the real issue, the important issue here is getting air into this person's lungs. And in the same way, by dealing with this man's sin first, Jesus suggests... Not that he has no other needs, but that his greatest need is forgiveness. Which I guess leads on to an obvious question for us. Was it really that bad? I mean, what's he done? We might be forgiven for thinking in this case that his sin and his condition were connected. Uh, That's why the need for forgiveness and healing. But when we look at the New Testament more broadly, that's not the picture that emerges. You can't link sin and suffering directly like that. In fact, Jesus himself very explicitly ruled it out. There was a time in his ministry when a tragic accident happened. It was a local construction, the Tower of Siloam. It had fallen down and it killed 18 people. And the people asked Jesus, you know, what happened there? And Jesus very clearly said, look, you can't read this tragedy back into their lives. This didn't happen to those people because of their sin, because they'd done something wrong. Those who suffered this fate are no more sinners than anyone else. 
So the reason the paralytic needed forgiveness was not because he'd done the kind of wrong no one else had, but because he'd done the same wrong all of us do. All of us need forgiveness for our sins. Now, the paralytic's life just underlines the urgency. This moment says we need forgiveness more than functioning limbs. Indeed, if we had to choose, it would be better to have our sins dealt with than to have our health intact. That's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? I wonder, what would you say? Where would you put forgiveness in the hierarchy of needs? I guess it depends how you or how we understand our relationship with God in the end, doesn't it? The story is told of a taxpayer who wrote the HMRC saying, I've not been able to sleep well for two years. Here's a check for £2,000 in back taxes. And then he signed his name. And then underneath it he wrote, P.S., if I don't sleep better in a week, I'll send you the other ten grand as well. That's what it's like, isn't it? That's where this gets tricky in our relationship with God because we often don't really register what we've done wrong as we should. But if God is the all-powerful creator of the world, if he created us in his image with the immense dignity of having real moral responsibility, if we were made to be in relationship with him, with us as his creatures, him as our God, then sin is a really big problem because we reject our very maker. When we go our own way, as we like to, we, we appoint ourselves little gods of our own little worlds. And for that, the only true God who is just and holy, he holds us accountable for that. There is such a thing as guilt. There really is. It's got very little to do with eating an extra slice of chocolate cake. But it is real. It's objective. It describes our situation as sinners before God. And one which, unlike any earthly suffering, has real eternal consequences. The judgment of God. Now I wonder, do you recognize that need? It's a real challenge, isn't it? It's not naturally perhaps what we think we need. But that's what the Lord Jesus came to solve. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I guess for most of us, we're better off than this particular man. But still, life is full of pressures and struggles, lots of pressing needs. How would you feel if the Lord Jesus suddenly bust in on your life and said, son, daughter, don't worry, your sins are forgiven? How would you feel? Would you feel blessed? Would you feel, oh, Jesus, actually, I'm thinking you might have sorted out a couple of other things for me first. It is a shocking thing to say. But secondly, it is also a wonderful thing to say. It is a wonderful thing to say. We'll tell you about a guy called Frank Shorter. Frank Shorter was about to enter the stadium on his way to winning the marathon at the Munich Olympics in 1972. And surprisingly, he heard a roar go up in the stadium quite a long time before he actually entered it. But to his even greater surprise, the arena was strangely unfussed when he entered himself at what he thought was the head of the field for the marathon. And the reason for that was that ahead of him, the West German student Norbert Zudhaus 
was jogging down the home straight. And the BBC commentary on this is rather precious. The camera enthusiastically zooms in on what the cameraman obviously thinks is the marathon winner. And the commentary goes, now here's some, oh, this, is, this is very puzzling. This man is not on the program. Uh, it's a hoax. It's somebody having a lark. I, I don't think it's a demonstration, but he, he looks as fresh as a buttercup. And that was Norbert Zuthaus. Norbert Zuthaus, a man who for a moment lay claim to an Olympic gold medal, the world's fastest marathon runner. But he'd only just run around the corner into the stadium. Of course, people didn't believe it for long. I mean, they looked at his 16-year-old, rather bulky physique. It was clear that if he'd lined up on the marathon start line that day, he wouldn't have been coming into the stadium anytime soon, if at all. Frank Shorter, on the other hand, had come fifth in the 10,000 meters a few days earlier. No one had even seen Sudhaus run before. Now, so it was with Jesus, too, to begin with. He was not accorded the honor that he deserved. Verse 6, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They don't think he's the real thing. And, and they're not wrong in their logic, of course. If I crash into your car, it's not for your friend to tell me that I'm forgiven. If anyone's going to forgive me, it's going to be you. And in the same way, if sin is something we do against the Lord, then he alone can forgive it. It, it would be blasphemy. It would be an insult for someone else to muscle in and say, oh, don't worry, God's fine with that. Except that here, the point of this incident is that Jesus does have that authority. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why? Why are you thinking these things? And then he asked a great question. And I wonder, as I read it, can you work out what actually is the answer to it? He asks, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Which is easier to say? Well, I guess it's the first, isn't it? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see sins being forgiven. There's no way of telling whether it's worked or not. A forgiven person looks pretty much the same as an unforgiven person. That's easy to say, whereas the second thing, the problem about saying, get up, take your mat, and walk, is that if the guy stays put, you look like a bit of an idiot. So to convince his audience that he was able to do the first thing, forgive the sins, Jesus says to the second, he says, get up. Verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And as the people watched it, they grasped what was going on here immediately. The passage says, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. They saw Jesus act, and they praised God, because they grasp something of who this man is. Jesus is God. So these words, son, your sins are forgiven, are a wonderful thing to say. They're a wonderful thing to say because Jesus is the real deal. 
He's a Frank, Sh- Frank Shorter, not a Norbert Zuthaus, if you like. He really can forgive sins. And we who live this side of the cross, we know that with even more confidence, don't we? Because we know how Jesus was able to forgive. You know, it's not that God has got softer in his old age that he's not quite so bothered anymore. Our sins can't just be swept under the heavenly carpet. But rather, Jesus, God the Son, went to the cross and there bore our guilt and suffered our blame. God himself took in himself the cost of our sin so that we would not have to. And for that reason, it really is a wonderful thing to say. It's a wonderful thing not just because Jesus can actually do it, he can forgive, but because true divine forgiveness is the most glorious eternal good that our lives can experience. If you are trusting in Christ, there is no guilt. There is no guilt that can stick to you anymore. All the wrongdoing, all the failures, all those moments that make us shudder to recall them, they are gone. They are truly behind. And that is life transforming. Perhaps you know something of that yourself. But the forgiven person can be honest about their sin. You know, so often we hide, we deny our sin, don't we? Why do we deny it? We deny it because we fear it can't be dealt with. But when we know it can be, we can be honest. The forgiven person is not defined by their past. God continues daily to reset our account. What was yesterday does not define my tomorrow. The forgiven person is able to forgive others. It's so much easier, isn't it, to give something that we have already received. The forgiven person can face God with confidence. We don't need to fear his judgment. The forgiven person can look to eternity with hope, free from the burden of sin and guilt. So I want to ask you, do you know the life-transforming forgiveness from God? Perhaps for some people here this morning or, or online, that is completely new. You've never really heard that before. Well, please do get in touch or ask a Christian friend, explore more, find out how you can make this yours. And then again, perhaps it's not new, but the Lord's forgiveness is kind of like a sort of distant tune, and it's frankly these days only faintly reaching your ears. Well, if that's you, will you attend to it again? Will you make this forgiveness the soundtrack of your life? And then perhaps finally you know it, and you treasure it. Well, praise God. And let me encourage you, even as I encourage myself, let us live out this forgiveness and all the joy and the hope and the transformation that it offers. Let's pray. Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, those words are available not just to that one man, but to every person under heaven. Our Lord, give us faith to make them our own and give us the confidence and the courage to share this good news of forgiveness with the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.